Greetings and welcome back to ZachCast, your official podcast for local government nerdery of all kinds. I am Chad, that is Pat, and today we are rejoined by Kyle Lester, Finance Director for the City of Colleyville. Kyle uh, joined us about two years ago, almost to the day, as we were heading into the early stages of pandemic response. A lot of uncertainty existed uh, as cities headed into their budget. So we chatted with Kyle a little bit about what Colleyville was doing, how they were approaching the budget season. And now that we are two years removed from that moment and heading into a different type of uh, concern and, and level of uncertainty, we wanted to bring Kyle back and just kind of revisit the things that they did, how they worked out. Uh, you know, how cautious were they? How did all of that stuff play out? And then looking forward with a new type of crisis, are we taking the same approach, a little bit different approach? So anyway, Kyle Lester, welcome back to the pod. Uh, hey guys, it's great to be here. I'm um, doing pretty well these days. It's an interesting couple of years, but uh, we're soldiering on. How are you guys? Good, man. We're doing great. Yeah. Uh, it's been uh, really weird working through COVID, obviously. You know, I think we we talked the first couple of weeks as we got into COVID about, you know, what to expect and where we were going to be. And I think as a company, we were in the same boat. Like we had no idea, like what are cities going to do in this instance? Are we, we going to grow? Or are we not going to grow? And, you know, obviously as most of our clients know, we grew like crazy uh, during that period of time and picked up a bunch of clients, which has been great. Um, it's been a lot of fun. I feel like we just caught our breath about last month uh, where we've kind of caught up and uh, you know, pushing property tax pretty hard. So that's, that's been a lot of fun. So, but it's great to have you back for sure. Definitely. And that'll be an interesting uh, topic to kind of flesh out for you guys is, yeah, I mean, we all know that property tax has been a huge, you know, issue at the legislature for a long time. Um, and, you know, with, with the way values are in the housing market, it's just kind of a bizarre um, sort of reality for a lot of cities. We just, heard from uh, our appraisal district that their the reappraisals for uh, residential are going to skyrocket again. Uh, and so it's um, just kind of an interesting environment we're in. Yeah. So, you know, the, the property tax side for us has been very, uh, very interesting because it's given, it's given us the ability to see a lot of data that, you know, most of the time you don't see property tax in Texas is done by 254 different counties. You've got all these different appraisal districts. The data sources are all different. Um, and so therefore it's really hard to analyze like what's going on in the, the property tax world. I actually did post last week on my LinkedIn, a story from the Texas Tribune. And I discussed it a little bit in, and, and there were quite a few city finance directors and folks that commented on it, but, uh, Texas Tribune did an article. We'll put it in the show notes specifically talking about property tax in Texas. And the legislature is going to have to retake up this issue after they, you know, quote unquote, solved it a year and a half ago. Right. And, uh, you know, Chad and I talked pretty extensively about the fact that it was never solved. It's, it, it's kind of been a Ponzi scheme of like populist opinions on how we're going to fix it. And, you know, the most recent one was obviously this, we, you know, we're going to have this three and a half percent cap on cities and they have to go to elections if they go over that. And then, you know, the redo of how no new taxes calculated, things like that. So, um, and, and we've said for years now that it doesn't really matter whether you put those caps in place, you're still going to have increases on residential properties. And, and y'all, I mean, where you are in Colleyville, you guys really have kind of compressed tax rate, right? Over the years? We do. Yeah. We've, we've gone with a no new revenue tax rate for four consecutive years. Um, it's been a political, uh, you know, win for our, our council and especially going into election season where, um, you know, we're going to lose um, 
well, I mean, we'll, we'll have at least two new council members, potentially one new mayor. Uh, and that's one of a handful of things that they've been talking about. But back to your question, we've, we've been compressing that rate for several years now. And we're coming to a point where I'm not sure how many more years we can float on that. Mm-hmm. Um, but kind of you mentioned with the legislature not really solving the tax problem. It, it's a relatively complicated problem. And when you're a politician, you have to look for easy solutions so you can sell it. And that's, I feel like what they've done. And that's what tends to happen even on a local level. You know, we're going into an election and there are several things locally being brought up that, you know, as someone who works with this data on a day-to-day basis, you're kind of like, okay, I mean, that's, I guess, a good talking point, but doesn't really have a, a substantial, um, you know, effect financially. And I don't know, it's just one of those things is a, is a government official that's in, in, in an interesting, interesting uh, environment to work in you end up being pulled in different directions that may maybe you otherwise you know wouldn't be yeah i I think colleyville would be like a really good interesting uh case study you know one because you do have a very fiscally conservative council right who has from a policy direction standpoint has said hey we are going to compress um and which has become a more common term because of school taxes right all the school districts have been compressing um but we're going to compress and uh, we're going to go to that no new tax rate. It, it would be an interesting case study because one of the things that we have we have seen and what the legislators are dealing with, and this is what the Texas Tribune article was really talking about, is even though there is these caps or the cities are adopting those no new tax rates, residential property owners are still seeing their tax bills go up by six or seven percent, right? Even though you are actually not collecting an additional dollar in total right. property tax from existing properties, those properties are seeing their tax rates or sorry tax bills go up six or 7%. And we have talked about extensively on, on this podcast, we've talked about the fact that that's really due to the difference in appraisal systems between commercial and residential property. Right. And the difference of appraisal systems is really having a negative impact overall on, on where that's going to go. And so, you know, obviously the legislature has said now for three or four different sessions. I mean, I think we had, you know, three sessions ago, we had the, the school buy down where they kind of bought down tax rates. And then eventually that got eaten up a couple of years later. And then, you know, two sessions ago, we had the school tax reform that went through. Then, you know, last year we had SB2, which is basically, if you have an increase in property values over two and a half percent, everything else compresses. And then the cities had, you know, the three and a half percent or no new tax, uh, you know, caps that were put in. Uh, so they've, they've really gone for like three or four legislative sessions at this point and, and made like these really easy to talk about populist changes, but they aren't actually impacting people's tax bills. And we always said most cities don't raise their tax rate by three and a half percent a year anyways. One of the really interesting things uh, that I think happened through COVID, especially in that second year, um, is that the the way that commercial properties can be appraised, um, we saw commercial you know values go down because they're you know, they're a lot of the restaurants and retail things, they, they kind of go on. I can't remember what the term is, but they've basically stated that they're the quality of their property because their business had, had gone down for the past year. Their property value itself should reflect that. And the appraisal district takes that into consideration. And so, for instance, we have a, a very large and um, robust tax increment financing district. And for the first year, that's largely commercial. And for the first year, we saw those values basically go down. Um, 
all our residential values went, you know, went way up. Um, and so it's, it's from a property owner standpoint, you say to yourself, well, if I'm a, a residential owner, I can go to the appraisal board and, and I, you know, I got to have my research. There are attorneys out there that you can pay to help you with this if you want, and you can try and get that appraisal down as much as possible, but you're not going to be nearly as successful as, um, is at least, you know, commercial properties have been in the past year. And so the tax burden overall is going to shift, uh, to residential owners and away from commercial businesses. It, it certainly has in the last year. The problem is that even under normal circumstances, the overall burden will shift to residential, assuming that residential is growing faster than commercial, right? But when you all add on top of that a cap that's extremely low, um, yet still higher than commercial properties tend to appraise, like their valuation appreciation grows, then it's going to have an outsize effect on that burden shifting. And so if the problem that we're trying to solve, quote unquote, is that residential property taxes are growing, all we're doing is making them grow faster as a percentage of the, the overall burden. So like we're not fixing anything, we're just actually making it worse. And that just makes these conversations even more difficult. And yeah, I mean, like you said, it's extremely complicated and no one really understands it who's making, well, very few people who make the laws understand it. There's like one person who does. And that, that's, uh, anyway, um, but, but yeah, uh, we talked about like a crazy idea would be to have separate rates and separate calculations based on property type. Um, and that way you could actually uh, do something about the residential properties independent of commercial valuations, mineral, personal valuations. Um, I don't, I mean, there are drawbacks to that, but at least it would take a, a little bit more of a direct, um, a direct angle towards the question of increasing residential values. But at the end of the day, if property values are growing 10, 15% a year, even if there's an appraisal cap on it, like you can't stop the property taxes from going up in that scenario. Like this is the system that we have. It's like saying that inflation is growing at 10% and therefore sales taxes are growing because instead of paying, you know, $8.25 on a $100 item, now I have to pay $9.50 because the price of that item is more expensive. Like that's just, that's just the way that the math works. There's, if you want, the only way to solve it is to use a different system. And we just can't do that at this point. Yeah, I, I'd be, I mean, I'm interested to see kind of how that would play out if you, you know, made the rates different by property type. I tend to believe that, you know, you can try and fix things to make it more granular, but overall, politically, they're always going to try and slap a very easy to swallow band-aid on it. It's going to mess everything up. Yeah. So I, I would agree with that, Kyle. The The problem is, is that we are where we are because of the band-aids, right? Mm -hmm. the, the changes in a com commercial appraisal systems uh, or or how commercial appraisals are allowed to be done by law. And then also the case law that's been adopted on that that gets used quite often that's not actually codified um, is, is why we're in the situation we're in. I think what, you know, what Chad is saying is, you know, it is one of those things that I think legislators could fairly simply get around. But I agree, they could possibly screw it up as well. But if you had a bucket of money that was commercial and you wanted that same bucket of money in a bucket of money that's residential and you wanted that same bucket of money, you could set your tax rates based on that same bucket of money. You could also force a city because the one thing that Chad and I have talked about in the past and I could see is that cities would, would try to raise taxes more on the commercial side than a residential side because commercial doesn't vote, right? 
So, you know, so you would have to put things in the law to say that, you know, you know, maybe a city has to equally raise taxes on, on both or or something, something along there. So, but I think it's really interesting to talk about Colleyville because what you just said about your TIF district is exactly what we say on, on a more global county level data, just looking at, at county data, you know, when a residential property is getting appraised, there's only one method. It's the market appraisal, right? Your neighbor's house sells for $300,000 and you have the same square footage. Your house is worth $300,000. That's the market appraisal system. And there is a 10% cap on a homestead, but you're just going to be in cap loss for the next 20 years. Like we have been in Parker County and you're just always going to have increases in your property values. So, um, you know, on the resident, whereas on the commercial side, when you talk about your TIF during COVID, it's very interesting because those businesses, they could have been in a market appraisal system before, but they kind of got to the uh, the spaghettis of the highway where you've got I-20 and I-30 and 35 all coming together and they get this choice right, right then, right? They're like, you know what? I've been on I-30 for the last five years in appraisal methods. I'm going to hire my attorney, tell him I want to go to I-20's appraisal method now, right? Like you just, you get an off-ramp, you get to go a different direction and residential properties don't don't get that, right? So there's a gamification of the system that occurs on the commercial side that is not available on the residential side. Absolutely. Yeah. The, the fact that they don't have really equal footing in those um, appraisal methods is it's, it's not talked about very much. Um, you know, another thing and this is sort of tangential, I think to what we're talking about, but it, it sort of feeds into, I think it's strategy both financially and operationally for any city going forward is, is knowing, you know, not only the makeup of your property, residential versus commercial, but how much of those residential properties uh, are moving to exemptions each year mm-hmm. um, because we have, we have an older population and in the past, maybe not last year, but the year before that, we saw our uh, property exemptions go up about 15%. Um, and so the really only exemption we have is, is disabled or uh, over 65. We don't have a homestead exemption. So you're, you're further shifting the property burden to, um, you know, to younger homeowners, um, that you know is also sort of a, a part of the conversation that's um isn't that part of the problem though is that we don't have as yeah. many younger homeowners well exactly and so we can say all, all we want we're not taking in as much or, or any, any additional revenue you know on average but the fact of the matter is you're still seeing a lot of property bills go up so can you uh, for the for the folks that we have that listen to the podcast who are not finance directors and deal with property tax every year can you discuss how the over 65 freeze is taken into account in your calculations? Can you just run through that real quick? Sure. Um, so basically that, that property value gets frozen, um, you know, at a certain point. So their tax bill remains relatively static, but the loss that you get um, from freezing that property versus the increase you would have gotten in turn gets sort of spread around amongst your other property owners. Um, so we tend, I tend to try and forecast, as best I can, how much that, that freeze is going to go up um, just sort of for informational purposes. But again, for the, from the standpoint of the known revenue tax rate, you know, that's, that's just based strictly on the amount of revenue we pull in. And so that that's relatively simple for us just to say, all right, if we're going for the known revenue rate, we basically know how much revenue we're going to get. It just kind of breaks down a little bit different for, for property owners. So let, let's say you have a million dollars in loss because of this, 65 cap, right? That million dollars is then spread out to all the other taxpayers in the city because you're able to adjust your rate based on the fact that you got a million dollars of loss before you go above the no new tax rate, right? Yeah, absolutely true. Okay. 
I just, I just that's, think that's the way the calculation. Yeah, it's it's important. Yeah. It's important note that you know basically there is a subsidy for people who are over the age of sixty five that's occurring within the taxation system. That's what I'm trying to point out. Yes, that's absolutely what's what's been happening. So, Kyle, let's jump back to two years ago. Um, obviously, you know we're talking about property taxes. It's relatively stable, uh, even with all of the rigmarole that you have to go through to calculate how much revenue you're going to get. Sales tax was the big question that you and a lot of other people had. So, as far as your budgeting went, like what did you put into your budget for 2021, fiscal 2021 for sales tax versus what you actually collected? Like, I'm not want to call you out here on your projection skills, but you know, <laughs> everyone was, was uh, in a, such a state of uncertainty. I'm just curious, like, what did you expect to happen versus what did happen? That's an interesting question. Um, you know, this hit, I, I think we really started to see these things in like March and April, um, which was, in, I mean, better than it hits then, that it hits like much closer to the budget season. Because you still have a few months to see how something so immediate is like a pandemic and economic closures are going to hit your, um, your sales tax base. But I had taken a look at basically how exposed it seemed like we could be. Uh, from in-person businesses and restaurants, and I sort of guesstimated it's you know possible on the the high end of things um, to to have about a ten percent dip at the worst. And so I kind of projected out and looked at how, you know what that would look like for us, um, particularly within the next two fiscal years. Um, and you know we didn't have to we had enough reserves and, and foresight from previous years of planning, we didn't have to try and have this knee-jerk reaction um, and start making these huge cuts. I know a few cities in the areas had that. Um, but the very next month, um, April, I remember that came in and we had increased, I think, 6% over the previous April. And so we were like, okay, that's interesting. Not exactly what we expected at all. We thought maybe flat or a couple of a percent lower you know, at the best. And since that point, we haven't come down. Um, the worst month we have was still a 1% increase over the previous fiscal year. And what we saw was our, our businesses that, you know, the, the ones that I looked at, the in-person stuff, uh, entertainment, restaurants, they did take a hit. But what I didn't anticipate is that so many of our residents shifted their purchasing habits to remote sellers. So that we still had this influx of cash um, to where, and if you look at cities like, like Colleyville and Keller, for instance, both had the same phenomenon where we never had a, a hiccup in sales tax. In fact, we set sales tax records for the city. Um, so it was an interesting look at kind of juxtaposing that with a very much more destination-based economy like Grapevine or Hearst. They had a really hard time. And they bounced back significantly, but um, you know the, the just go back to the purchasing habits of, of our residents is just shifted, uh, so that we didn't really have a huge disruption. Do you think that in your particular case, where the the commercial base is is growing, um, but I wouldn't say it's something like a South Lake, for example, which uh, is just a powerhouse, or, or even a Grapevine where uh, maybe a lot of your residents did a good bit of their in-person shopping outside of your city. And instead, 
if they're starting to order online, that sales tax that would have been going somewhere else is actually coming to you now. Yeah. In any other environment, you know, if it had stayed within the city, it would have kind of cannibalized itself. But we're, you're right, we're next door to South Lake Town Square, um, Grapevine Mills Mall. You know, all those things are very, I have disposable income and I'm going to go spend it at these, you know, these awesome stores. Uh, and now they just, they couldn't go out. So they stayed home and ordered things online and it gets sourced back to Colleyville instead. So what did you budget sales tax growth to be in 2021? So this would have been uh, fiscal 2020 is when the pandemic started. Yeah. Um, you know, you're building your budget for 2021 during that time. What did you project that sales tax growth to be the following year? Uh, we kept it pretty much flat for the most part. Um, and the reason it was, a, I mean, number one, we could afford to. Uh, we haven't needed to budget sales tax increases to kind of keep pace with our spending uh, at this point in time. So we kind of had the room to not to be like, okay, we could, you know, take our foot off the accelerator and still assume that we're not going to really receive too much more in sales tax, um, given that we're kind of in the middle of a pandemic. We had a bit of an idea of what we think it's going to do, but again, this is kind of unprecedented, at least in our lifetime. So if we can not rely on an increase, that's what we're going to do. Um, what we actually saw in fiscal 2021 was we ended the year 14% higher than basically than our budget. Um, and so we had all that growth coming into 2022 um, that we could kind of, you know, keep in our back pocket if we needed to. So, so when you got into 20, wide, like almost, I'm sorry, Patrick, this is like $800,000, give or take? Um, about five to 600. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's in, that's in the general fund. Um, basically double that. So upwards of like a million, a million two uh, across the city. So when you got into 2022, then you started to budget and forecast in 2022, you're coming off that 14% increase in 21. What were your thoughts? Were your thoughts that, you know, like, did you think it was going to slow down? Like, no way we're going to have growth over 14% year over year. Yeah, I'm I'm definitely not going to budget for double digit growth at this point. Um, (laughs) You know, I talked a little bit about like, so, you know, Grapevine, for instance, I always go back to Grapevine. They took a huge sales tax hit which was predictable. But as soon as things opened up, I mean, they bounced back, you know, even higher than they were. And so assuming that we had people that otherwise would have shopped at South Lake or Grapevine, you know, now being sourced to us, you kind of have to assume the opposite when things open back up, that we're going to kind of ease back down. Um, And so that's what I'm, I'm kind of assuming here is that, you know, we're starting to see, we had double digit growth several months. Now we're starting to see that come back down. Uh, and so I'm, I'm still going to assume maybe a couple of percent uh, increase, um, you know, finishing in, in 2022. Um, right now, it's looking like maybe five to six percent. Um, and I think going into the next fiscal year, uh, we have a couple of expenditure pressures uh, that are going to be put on us. But I'm not going to I don't want to budget that on the back of sales tax at this point. How's inflation factoring into these projections, right? Because obviously it's a big chunk of the growth that you're seeing, and but it also has the sort of corollary effect on your expenses, right? In terms Absolutely. of salaries, you know, needing to keep purchase power parity for your employees, um, cost of goods and services and things like that. Mm-hmm. So how are you balancing those two things? 
So a couple of things on that side. Um, the first is you mentioned salaries and purchasing power and stuff. Um, we've lost some employees um, to different private sectors relatively recently. Um, and so we've that, that's been a part of our decision to do a, uh, a citywide salary survey to make sure that we're within the market. Um, as you know, whenever that happens, it's public safety salaries that come back that you have to really adjust. So we know going into next fiscal year, we're going to have at least several hundred thousand dollars that we're probably going to have to feed into uh, salaries to keep everyone you know, close to market and retain our employees. Um, the other spending pressure you kind of mentioned is, of course, just the purchase of goods and services. But the biggest thing there is our capital improvement program, which is really extensive. And we we're doing our best to fund it with cash. And every single bid we've gone out for has come back, come back um, higher than we had initially anticipated, just the cost of construction um, is so much higher. So we have to sort of adjust uh, you know, our, our cost estimations and then potentially put off some projects because we just couldn't do as much with the dollars we have as we thought. Um, so, I mean, at the end of the day, we're, we're going to continue to be conservative from a, uh, a revenue earning standpoint. Um, but I think it's, it's you know, you can adjust some costs like those capital improvements and others you really just have to try and keep up with. And those would be the, you know, the personnel capital um, that you have there. Well, people, I mean, let's talk about people real quick because it's something you guys are faced with. I mean, we're, we're actually doing a couple compensation studies for some cities right now. And what we have noticed is that the people side of the business is getting expensive very quickly. There just is yes. not a lot of people to fill the roles and therefore the, the price of those people are, are going up, right? Are you know, public safety is obviously one of those areas where like, if you lose, you know, for folks who aren't in cities, I'll say this out loud. Uh, if you lose a police officer, there is an expense to that. That's not just about going to hire another body, but you didn't have to bring somebody in. They have to be trained. They have to go to academy. You're going to have overtime expense to cover that shift because you still have minimum staffing levels, so forth and so on. So, um, you know, a lot of times not paying salaries in PD can cost you more money than it, it would if you actually paid the salaries just because you have so much turnover. Yeah. But for you guys, what other areas of the city are you finding to be really tough to retain or where you feel like wages are, are increasing quick? Um, you know, public works has always been one that can be difficult on the front line. Mm -hmm. um, you know, because I think you get, if you get to a level of like manager or above, you kind of somewhat built a career on that. But um, you kind of mentioned losing a police officer. That happens more often than not than, than a lot of people would think. Um, and I think public works is a bit of the same way, is that you, you have pressures from maybe unrelated industries. They just kind of say, you know, maybe I've kind of had enough of, you know, digging streets and, and filling potholes and doing capital projects. I kind of want to jump over to something a little more lucrative that I have, um, you know, some, some upward mobility. Uh, especially with a city like Colleyville, we have a lean staff. Um, and I can name, you know, I have a few employees that are just fantastic, but I, I don't, there's only so much I can offer them from a growth standpoint. We have that in several areas of the city. And um, I mean, there, there's always so much you can do to try and keep people around. Um, public works has been one of those that we've, we've had some issues. Yeah. So there's one thing that I will always have a great deal of respect for, and that's the street employees who in the dead of a Texas summer, 110 degrees are out on a laydown machine pouring hot asphalt. Like that mm -hmm. is an absolutely brutal job. So yeah, it's uh, 
depending on the market and how things are working, the possibility of losing someone to something that's maybe a little bit less physically demanding, or at least a little bit in a more comfortable environment is, is something that's, that's always going to be a challenge. Yeah. And you have the same thing when, I mean, when the Snowmageddon hit, we had our public works guys out there helping people shut off their water and all that stuff just out in the freezing cold. And it's, it sounds weird to say, cause we live in Texas, but I mean, it's, it's happened two years in a row. So let me, let me ask this question. What, what is looking into fiscal year 23, right? Cause we're just now opening budget. You, you've probably had budget kickoff at this point, right? We're about to have it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So what is the mindset, you know, with, with kind of all the uncertainty in the world, the high inflation rate, you know, obviously the Ukrainian conflict, uh, you know, all the different types of things that, you know, that we're seeing right now, what is your mindset for 2023? And can you compare that with any other fiscal year you you've lived through? Yeah, it's, this is an interesting one because as I said, you know, the previous four years, the city has been very dead set on, we're going to do the no new revenue tax rate. We can afford to do that. You know, we, we had areas that we knew we could sort of, um, uh, you know, move expenses to and, and make that happen. It's been relatively easy for us. But now we've kind of cut things as lean as, as probably we can without having a relying on an increase in, in property taxes. And when you put the salary survey on top of that, it's going to affect by at least a couple hundred thousand dollars. You have to start tempering people's expectations that like, okay, we've really praised ourselves on the ability to hold the line, but now it's not really just up to us. Um, and we have to start to think about strategically if we're going to potentially um, ask at this point, maybe two new council members and our city council members to consider a potential tax rate increase or not going to the known revenue rate. We have to be very, very careful about how we phrase that um, and, and you know how that not only is perceived in the public, but is also perceived from a staffing standpoint. Um, the easiest thing to do when you're, especially in a North Texas conservative city, when you talk about tax rate increases is to say it's for public safety. Um, but, you know, a lot of cities do that. Even, even people who are arguing against the tax rate cap, it was, you know, said, okay, talk about it, just anti-public safety bill, all that stuff. Um, conversely, when, I think when, um, employees, especially frontline employees, hear about that, non-public safety can start to feel a little bit demoralized and devalued. Um, so you have to control that message from you know, externally and internally a little bit. And so I think a lot of our conversations in our director level has been, you know, we may not go for that minimum revenue rate, we may not be able to do it. If we do, here's kind of what we're thinking strategically to make that happen um, and to try and help our leaders understand what's happening. Sales tax makes up what portion of y'all's budget? Uh, 15%, I want to say. 15%? Okay, so it's, it's not huge, right? So, no, we're, we're very property tax heavy city. Yeah, so I, 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 I say that because I, I want to throw these numbers out there, right? So you, for the last four years, have adopted the no new tax rate, right? I think you, right. I think you said four earlier. You're going to have a salary yeah. study that's going to be done. Obviously, that salary study is going to take in inflation. Your max cap is three and a half percent. If you if you were to go to that rate, the inflation rate this year that we estimate for you guys right now, this is as of uh, this month, so or as of last month, as of March, we're showing the inflation estimation to be nine point six six percent. Yikes! Right. So <laughs> that's a it's a it's a huge number, right? That's that 
that is, it, it's literally hitting the milk and eggs and meats and those type of things that your employees are, are buying. Things are more expensive. You know, I, I joked the other day, I had to swipe my credit card twice at the gas station for the first time, right? That's a, that, that's a change because things are yeah. going up. So do you see that conversation filtering in to discussion at city councils? I mean, like a legitimate inflation conversation that's going to, that's going to come up. If it comes up, it's going to be um, probably on the cost of capital projects rather than, rather than our employees can afford X, Y, Z. I've seen that, I think, come up at, not at this city council, but in Weatherford. Um, I think maybe the, the year after Chad left, we, we had talked about salary increases and mentioned inflation, and that didn't really go anywhere. Um, I don't know if it would here or not. but well, Inflation was I, sub 2% back then. Yeah, well, I think we, we talked about well cost of cost of living stuff like that, and uh, and I think that maybe bees is a little bit beyond what a lot of people want to talk about at that that level. Um, you know, with the salary survey coming back in, we'll probably just keep it at look. This is the market, and the market is what the market is. Um, we have a lean staff. If we want to retain good people, this, this is kind of what we're looking at. I really don't see inflation becoming a topic as pertains to, you know, people staying on city staff um, other than like the cost of a lot of our other, you know, frontline services, construction, things like that. I will be really interested to see which cities in their COLA projection, cost of living increases for those folks who don't work in cities. You know, typically yeah. you have a two to 3% COLA increase on salaries a year, right? Before you start talking performance and other things. I'll be really interested to see cities that come out and do 9% COLA increases. And the reason I say that's, the reason I say that's really interesting because I, from a management perspective, I think that's really smart because you're not going to fight for the next three to four years to catch back up, right? Yeah, you kind of bite off a little bit more at once rather than having to keep coming back to the well and taking these little bits and pieces out of it. Yeah. It, it gets very difficult to catch up when you're so far behind, right? Well, if you, if you're always kind of at that top, top or you're, you're pushing that lead. And when you have a huge inflation year like this um, and, and I, you know, the, the only year that I can like look back at, and, and this isn't going to make people feel warm and comfortable where I felt like, and, and probably the actual inflation number was not near this high, but where I felt like things were really hot and we had to do some things with salaries was 2007, like 2006, 2007, right before mm. we had the big housing downturn in 08. I, you know, I really felt like there were these inflationary pressures that were there that we really needed to take care of and make sure that we got our pay where it needed to be. Um, and so I don't know what happens next year. Um, you know, Consumer spending does look to be a little softer than it is right now, right? So there are some things there. Um, but yeah, I think you're smart. I mean, going back to that sales tax projection, I mean, not not projecting double digits into 23 after double digit gains in 22 is probably a, a good way to look at it. But you know, ultimately at this point, anything less than nine percent or nine and a half percent is a loss. It's it's yeah. not, you know, it's not positive. It's a loss. Well, Kyle, thanks for coming on, buddy. Good luck this uh, upcoming budget season. Hopefully things will go smoothly for you. Thank you. Thank you. This, the conversation went pretty quick. I had a lot of other bullet points to hit. Oh, we'll hit them. Get to. Yo, go. Let's, let's hear it. Rapid fire. Let's go. 
Yeah, oh, rapid around. fire. Okay. Other things we have to watch out for. Um, obviously, increases in health insurance. We've had a really good uh, couple of years in that, but our loss ratio is uh, is still something that we have to uh, you know keep a lookout for. So that's another cost that I think was really big for people to hit on in the previous years, and and now the conversation is at least for us has shifted away from that, but it's definitely still out there. Um, I mentioned that being an election year kind of throws things a bit out of whack for us. Um, that's, you know, that, that's kind of a bit of a, a question mark, uh, knowing that you have a couple of council seats that are come, you know, coming up and what their priorities are going to be and, and all of that um, is, is interesting. Um, maybe the last time to think to, to hit on is Colleyville is almost built out. Uh, our developable property is, um, is getting pretty uh, scarce at this point. So that's obviously going to hit uh, your increases in sales tax and building permits just are, are continuing to tank and they're, you know, it's just the way it is. But um, I think as you, as a city, you have to transition from a growth city to a pretty well landlocked one. Uh, and that can be a difficult transition for, for staff. Yeah. Or you could just up zone. <laughs> just, just build, uh, build higher. Yeah. More density, baby. I tell you what, you come come run for city council and mention density. <laughs> Have we sent Kyle a a signed Strong Towns book yet? Yeah, I think you got, got one. Didn't Strong Towns book. Okay, yeah. So that that would be a a very interesting case study in Colleyville, Texas. If you you know walked into a, a neighborhood and said, you know what, I, I want to turn this one acre million dollar home multi-million dollar home into a fourplex or duplexes yeah <laughs> yeah um, you would be run out of town there was no one in the city that, that wants to argue for more density well and so, if you could get if you could get multifamily approved in colleyville though you would make a fortune as a multifamily developer right like i'm sure you would but that product it, it, would just be killer yeah so, so when, when we started pulling property tax data, one of the cities that I looked at, uh, you know, pulling some neighborhoods and just looking at the sort of pro forma, I pulled a couple of neighborhoods in Colleyville and the, like the loss ratio was basically as consistent as pretty much anywhere else. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the amount of revenue that can be generated, even on those really high value homes, does not cover the cost of the infrastructure and the policing and the public safety. Um, which is which is probably a much broader conversation relative to the appraisal caps and the senior freezes and the age and the population demographics and things like that. But but yeah, it, it will be a very interesting question. Like when you cannot build really anything new and you shift to a kind of redevelopment or a maintenance mode, if you're underwater as it, uh, you know to start with on those neighborhoods, which is not again you're not unique to Colleyville. Um, it's basically the situation everywhere, but you know, then what? Yeah. I mean, no one ever, I don't ever hear many people talking about, you know, revenue per acre or anything like that. And it's, it's an important metric, I think, to keep in mind, especially, you know, out in Weatherford, I mean, in that area, potentially, particularly you had a lot of like car dealerships coming in and stuff like that. And you're like, man, they're taking up a lot of land. Um, and it, it can look flashy, but what, what are you really getting from that versus what you're having to give for that? Um, and it, that's, that's where having a really good economic development and financial, financially savvy economic development guy comes into play. Yeah. So Colleyville has done a pretty good job, especially with the office, like the, the office parks, because those are relatively dense office parks. They don't take up a ton. They have a lot of shared parking. So you're getting a yep. lot of value, you know, I think 
for the for the amount of acreage that's being used. And yeah, and office well, and from, that, that's, that's, from a, a, like a consumer standpoint, it's a lot of we have several grocery stores that are higher end, and and those don't tend to fluctuate is you know as much as say some other retail establishments. So there's a lot of consistent shopping that goes on. Matt, you got anything else? No, I mean, do we hit all of the bullet points in the lightning round? Yeah, I think I'm good. I think I've done enough of a brain dump as I can. Yeah, I got it all out. Feels better now, man. Hey, this is an interesting, this is is off the cuff and completely different from what we've talked about. But um, as we've been doing capital projects and and the fact that like bids are so public and everything, one thing you really got to watch out for is fraud. We actually had a pretty... um, uh, sophisticated uh, try at about $4 million from us that uh, my staff caught before it went anywhere. But I mean, we've, we've had several of those come in as we have these large scale projects come up, yeah, were they, uh, especially. Were they trying to imitate the contractor and then get you to change the routing information? Is that what they tried to do? Exactly. Yeah. And it's, it's, in the, you know, it's easy to say, all right, we just don't do that over email. We'll, you know, contact them and everything, but there are a lot of cities out there and, and school districts, I think are pretty, you know, um, susceptible to this, but they, they fall for that. Um, we actually had one, um, someone who tried to change just an employee's, you know, direct deposit. And so I said, sure, we can do that. What's your bank info? And they would email it to me and I'd send that to one of our detectives they freeze the account and it turns out that same account had like $750,000 worth of uh, Texas school districts money. Wow. Um, and it's just, it's, it's crazy. Like how people can fall for that stuff, but it, it happens a lot. Um, so I, I don't know. I think, you know, just gotta, as a finance person, train your staff on that and keep watching for it. But I thought that was like an interesting little aside that doesn't, I don't think I've talked about with you guys before. Yeah, with with open data on that side too, like you, know, you can go to a website now and you can pull up any public employee salary level, right? Mm-hmm. And what their name is and what city they work for. And so it, it gets really easy to just spoof an email, you know, set up a Gmail account with a spoofed email and send that email to you to basically, you know, say, hey, I'm, you know, I'm John Doe and I need you to change my routing information to a new bank or I need you to set aside, yeah. you know, 500 bucks of my paycheck to this bank account, those type of things, right? So, um, you know, we had this rule back in the day. Y'all probably do this too with transfers. Y'all, y'all have tokens for transfers, I would imagine. But oh yeah, yeah. So, um, and I'll I'll talk about this because you really you can't go wrong if you do it correctly. You know, we would have tokens, and we would have to we would have to insert two tokens into a wire transfer. And and our rule was you had to be together when you did it, right? Mm-hmm. Like the person requesting the wire, which would have been me to my finance director, right? The finance director and myself had to be in the same room at the same time requesting our token number. That way we knew it wasn't a fraudulent, you know, somebody trying to yeah. spoof me. Because we what, what ended up happening a lot, and, and I don't know if this is still as common as it is, but it'd be like a city manager emailing his finance director or their finance or his or her finance director and saying, you know, hey, I need you to send a wire for this amount to this user for this deal. And, you know, back in the day, it's like, yeah, why not? City manager tells me to send it. It's less than 50,000. He has the authority to do it. It's good. But it was not actually the city manager sending the email, right? So, uh, yeah, it's in, it's incredibly tough. And, uh, you know, in today's world, Chad got me into password managers and using crazy long passwords to be better at what we did. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, it, the sophistication out there is crazy good right now. 
Yeah, usually you can spot it pretty easily for the ones that are, you know, coming in from another country that they're like, okay, you've misspelled the word the, or, you know, whatever the, the language is off. But the one that we had that almost, it didn't almost, but it was trying to get 4 million from us. There was maybe a few small signals that told us this is not legit. Um, you know, regardless, we would have verified that verbally with our contacts. So there was no way they were getting that. But it's just, it was kind of scary, like how how targeted it was for the timing, particularly, because that was the day that deal was supposed to go through. Yeah, yeah. That's, you know, when you keep your check register online, all that open data, it can be a double-edged sword. Yeah, it's wild, man. It's, it, it is crazy for sure. So, well, brother, I appreciate you coming on and talking with us today. Uh, Chad, are you still there with us? Yep, I'm still here. Uh, all right, awesome. So uh, you want to wrap it up? Uh, typically, you are the one that wraps up. <laughs> he can't see my face right now. I can see you. Anyways, Kyle Lester, man, thanks a lot. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for coming in and talking about the uh, the tough world of, of finance, especially in today's world of inflation and uh, tight property tax values. And so we are certainly appreciative of that and appreciative of our friendship, man. Uh, yeah. All the way back to Thanks grad school on. where I annoyed the life out of everybody in the classroom. I appreciate you still hanging out with me. <laughs> that's that's a fact. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks, brother. Appreciate it, man. All right. Thanks. See you guys.